Good morning, everyone. If I haven't had the chance to meet you, my name is John. I get to serve as the lead pastor here at Elmwood. Uh, is anyone else this morning really glad that they have that extra hour of sleep? Uh, I am. Um, it is November, which means that all of the sickness is going around like all of the time. And two weeks ago, it was McKenna's turn, our youngest. And then last week, it was Dina's turn. And then this last week, it was my turn. So I'm really glad that we had that extra hour of sleep. And I kind of just wish that I had like three more days of that extra hour of sleep. Uh, So what I'm going to do as an act of love and respect for you all is as soon as I'm done doing my thing up here, I'm going to go sit over in the corner with my mask on like I was earlier. And Dave and Sherry are going to serve communion to you. And I'll just sort of be over here so that I'm not going to spread anything uh, to you all. So uh, with that, let me invite you to join me in a word of prayer. And then we are going to look at this passage this morning. God, as we come before you this morning and as we submit ourselves to your word, we ask that you would cause us to become more and more humble people. Lord, we ask that the teaching of this passage would land with us in fresh ways. We pray that each of us here would leave with exactly what you want us to hear this morning. Uh, We trust you and the power of your spirit to meet each of us and to provide exactly what we need to provide encouragement or correction or anything else. So God, we submit ourselves to you and we come before you now in humility, asking that you would make us more and more people of humility. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. It matters not only where we end up in life, it matters how we get there. One area where we know this to be true is in the area of competition. Lance Armstrong is a name that uh, my guess is that most of you have at least heard. Lance Armstrong is known as a world-famous cyclist who's uh, most famously known for winning the Tour de France a record seven times in a row. If you don't know anything about the Tour de France, it's insane. It's a bicycle race that spans over the course of 24 days and covers 2,200 miles. To go that distance, we'd have to hop on our bikes and leave Elmwood and drive, pedal south, all the way to Mexico City, Mexico, and then go 100 miles further. So it's insane for someone to win that seven times in a row. But there's not just that that Lance Armstrong is known for. He's also known for what? For using performance-enhancing drugs that gave him maybe a little bit of edge over the competition. And maybe that's the reason why he won seven of them in a row is because he cheated, right? And uh, so because competitions like this uh, are so important, uh, it matters not only that you win, it matters how you win. And of course, because he cheated, those titles were stripped from him and he was barred from participating in any future Tour de France competitions. In 2017, there was controversy that came out of uh, the World Series winning Houston Astros when it came out that they had cheated along the way. Um, Catchers have hand signals that they do back and forth with a pitcher. The catcher will tell the pitcher what kind of 
pitch he thinks he should do next, you know, curveball or a slider or a fastball, whatever. And the Astros had figured out a way to intercept those signals that were going back and forth from the catcher to the pitcher. And if you listen to the audio, you can hear a baseball bat clanking on the side of a garbage can from the dugout of the Astros. And that was to tell the person who was up at bat what pitch was coming next. And there's actually uh, allegations that they had buzzers underneath their jerseys and someone in the dugout would be pressing this thing so they'd feel vibrations under their jersey and would know what pitch was coming next to give them something of an advantage. Now, I think we all know and understand that winning the World Series is like a huge accomplishment, but it matters not only that you win, it matters how you win, right? And that's because, as we have been saying, it matters not only where we end up in life, it matters how we get there. We've been in a four-week series where we are thinking about the subject of politics, and we have been saying that when it comes to the realm, the world of politics, it matters not only where we end up, it matters how we get there. In other words, it matters who we vote for, it matters what policies we would uh, promote, and it matters as much, if not more, what kind of people we are in the process as we go about engaging in politics. So what we've been doing is looking at these four virtues that we believe we need to cultivate if we are going to be wise stewards of our political influence and uh, to be good witnesses as we engage in the realm of politics with our friends who don't yet know Jesus. Uh, So those four virtues are presence. We looked at that last week. This morning, we're going to be thinking about the virtue of humility. Uh, Next week, we're going to be looking at love. And the week after that, the virtue of courage. So let's think about this virtue of humility this morning. As we look at this passage, we're going to see Jesus saying two things that look like a complete contradiction to one another, but they're not. So we're going to look at what Jesus says here, and then we're going to apply this to the realm of politics. So the first thing we can observe as we look at this passage is we can see a warning against judging others. Okay? These are verses that are familiar to many people, not only those who are followers of Jesus, but many people who are not yet followers of Jesus also were very familiar, familiar with these instructions from Jesus when he says in verses 1 and 2, Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. So his instructions here seem pretty clear. They seem pretty cut and dry. He says, don't judge other people. And then he goes on to appeal to their own sense of self-interest in telling them why they shouldn't judge other people, right? He says, for in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And then he uses another sort of first century turn of phrase when he says, with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Now, we don't use uh, oftentimes that exact same language, but in our modern environment, we have phrases, we have little sayings that mean the exact same thing. You might hear someone say, what goes around comes around, right? You might hear someone say, you reap what you sow. If we look to the realm of, to the world of physics and look at Newton's third law, we see that every action has what? An equal and opposite reaction. Right? These are all just the same way of saying what Jesus is saying here, that if you judge other people, don't be surprised when you yourself are judged by others. In our house, we have a cat. Our cat's name is Kirby. And yes, Kirby does always look uh, this. He always looks like he's got caught doing something wrong. <laughs> just always has this like, Ugh. 
so he sits in awkward spots like this and just always looks like he's afraid, scared. Uh, when our girls were younger, especially, they don't do this as much anymore, but when our girls were younger, they would always want to play with Kirby because he's, you know, closer to their size and he's cute and he's cuddly and all this stuff. And so we had to do some uh, coaching with our children because the way that they would want to play with Kirby is a little bit more aggressive than Kirby wanted them to play with Kirby. And so we'd have to appeal to their sense of self-interest and tell them, okay, uh, if you play aggressively with Kirby, what's he going to do? He's going to bite you. He's going to scratch you. He's going to claw at you, right? So we appealed to their sense of self-interest in telling them, if you do this, here's what the consequences are going to be. And so this is exactly what Jesus is telling us. He's giving us this warning against judging others and saying, if you judge others, don't be surprised when you get clawed in the face. When you judge other people, don't be surprised when you find yourself being judged by others. Uh, If you have the next-gen sheet, that's the first fill-in-the-blank right here, okay? If we stopped here with just these first two verses, we would completely miss the point of what Jesus is saying. Because... We could leave this passage thinking that what Jesus is saying is never judge anyone for any reason ever. Just don't do it. But what Jesus is telling us in this passage is he's literally saying the exact opposite of this. So we see him giving us this warning against judging others. But then the second thing Jesus says in this passage is we see him giving us instruction for how to judge other people. So in verse 3, he says, Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye? And pay no attention to the plank in your own eye. How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. So we have to take these two sayings of Jesus together. okay? Because again, When we take this as a whole, what we see is that Jesus is not making a blanket sort of prohibition against passing any form of judgment for any reason. He's not doing that. He's warning not against passing judgment categorically. He's warning against passing judgment in a certain kind of way. He's warning against passing judgment without any humility. Notice what he says. He uses this image that is uh, quite absurd, and that's kind of the point (laughs) is he he uses this image of a person who has a log in their eye and a person who's got a speck in their eye uh so jed i'm gonna ask you to come right up here for just like one second sorry i didn't tell you about this beforehand okay so imagine imagine that jed comes up to me and his eyes are all watering and he's you know he's got something stuck in his eye and he's trying to figure out just stand right here and he's trying to trying to figure out what this thing is and says hey would you you know be able to help me get this thing out And then I come around the corner, and I say, of course, Jed, I would love to help you get that, get that speck out of your own eye. Why don't you come over here and I can help you, (laughs) right? You can sit down, buddy. And obviously the point is that it's absurd, right? It's absolutely absurd that someone who's got a plank sticking out of their own eye is in no position to help someone get like this teeny little speck of sawdust out of their eye. And that's the whole point of it all, is that it's absurd. What Jesus is warning against is judging others without the humility to see the log in our own eye. So he's not saying, don't judge anyone for any reason. 
what he is telling us is he's giving us instruction for how to pass judgment on others. In verse 5, he says, First take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. So he's saying, you are supposed to be able to see the speck in someone's eye. It is good for you to see the speck in someone's eye. It is good for you to be able to help someone remove that speck from their own eye. But before you can do that, you have to be able to have the humility to see the log sticking out of your own eye. So he's giving us instruction on how we are to pass judgment on others. This teaching of Jesus is found in one of Jesus' most famous sermons, the Sermon on the Mount. And in this sermon, Jesus is painting a picture of what the kingdom of God looks like. And he's telling us, this is what the kingdom of God is like. And he's telling us, this is what it looks like to live as members of God's kingdom. It's an upside-down, inside-out kingdom with a completely different set of values than the values that we see just sort of naturally around us in the world. And Jesus is telling us what kind of people are members of the kingdom of God. And the point is this. The kingdom of God is inhabited by people who have the humility to remove the log from their own eye first. The kingdom of God is inhabited by people who have the humility to remove the log from their own eye first. So this virtue of humility is what Jesus is teaching to his followers. This is what members of the kingdom of God do, is we live humbly. And so what does that look like? As we sort of uh, think about this, as we take this teaching of Jesus on humility and apply that to the realm of politics, what does it look like for us to uh, practice humility as we go about the uh, endeavor of engaging in politics well? Let me suggest a few ways that we can go about this. Okay, these are very like basic, simple um, I'm hoping, I'm guessing that these are like not new information uh, for you all. But let me just sort of uh, give a few ways that we can practice humility in the realm of politics. Number one, uh, we recognize the limitations of what we know. So this is how we uh, engage in politics with humility, is we recognize the limitations of what we know. So humility means we see and understand that we don't know all the things about all the things, right? There are blind spots in things that we know. There's blind spots in things that we understand. We don't know everything about every, uh, every politician, about every policy. We can't oftentimes see around corners to the ways that certain uh, policy is going to actually get like worked out in the real world and some of the maybe unintended consequences or the negative consequences of a particular policy. We just don't always see all those things. So we recognize the limitations of what we know. And along with this, we also just like have the honesty to recognize that a lot of times the sources where we get our information, we, I think that a lot of people have a, you know, small-ish pool of resources. And all those resources that give us information tend to lean one direction or the other, right? Um, and so we just have to be honest, and recognize that, like, yeah, there's, there's information that I receive. And if you, you know, if you watch the way that Fox News and MSNBC cover the same exact set of events, you're like, do you people live in the same world? <laughs> right? Because there's, like, the exact opposite interpretation 
an explanation for things depending on what news source you look at. And so we just have to recognize, like, it's not entirely always a bad thing. We just have to have the humility to recognize, I don't have all the information. And sometimes the information I do have comes from sources that lean one direction or the other. And we just have to be able to recognize that and see that. And of course, if we're not careful, this can lead us to a kind of political paralysis, right? Where if we say, well, I don't have all the information. I don't know all the things. It can lead to a kind of like, well, I guess maybe I shouldn't have strong opinions about things or I shouldn't have strong convictions about things. That's not true at all. Just because we don't know everything doesn't mean we don't know something, right? At the end of the day, we are accountable to God, not for knowing everything. We are accountable to God for taking the information we did know and making the best possible decision with it that we could make at the time. And so we recognize the limitations of what we know, and we just acknowledge that, and we sort of just you know, own that for what it is. And we realize that we are accountable to God, not for all the things, but for what we do have and what we do know. So we practice humility by recognizing the limitations of what we know. The second way that we can practice this kind of humility is by recognizing the limitations of our life experience. What I mean by that is that humility means recognizing that our political decisions affect other people in ways that they will never affect us personally. So I just sort of put myself out there as an example right now. And just tell you that I don't know what it's like to be an immigrant. I don't know what it's like to be a refugee. I don't know what it's like to flee my home country in pursuit of a better life. I have no idea what it's like to flee political or religious persecution. I have no idea what it's like to go into a culture that's not my own, with a language that's not my own, and have to start from scratch. I know nothing of what that's like. I don't have a clue what it's like to find out that I'm pregnant and to feel like my only option is to have an abortion. I simply don't know what that's like. I don't know what it's like to grow up in poverty. I don't know what it's like to grow up in a single parent household. I don't know what it's like to find myself on government assistance programs, on welfare, things like this. I don't know what it's like to grow up in a black community. I don't know what it's like to have to have coaching conversations with my kids for how they are to interact with police officers if they get stopped at a, you know, for a traffic violation. I have no idea what that's like. And humility means we simply recognize that our political decisions affect other people in ways they may never affect us. Now, that doesn't mean we can't or shouldn't have like convictions about things. That doesn't mean, you know, I've never been an immigrant. That doesn't mean I can't have a perspective or an opinion about immigration policy in our country. I've never been on welfare. That doesn't mean that I can't have some sort of, like, opinion or have thoughts about how to, how to you know, organize government assistance programs well. It just means we have the humility to recognize that sometimes when I make political decisions, those affect other people in, in more direct ways than they will ever affect me. And so we just have the humility to recognize, I don't know all the things. And there are limitations, there are blind spots, there are things in my own experience that just limit my perspective. 
And so we have the humility to recognize the limitations of our life experiences. And lastly, what it looks like to practice humility is we cultivate genuine curiosity. In a way, this is sort of like the the byproduct of the first two. Because when we recognize the limitations of what we know, and when we recognize the limitations of our life experience, that leads us to a place where we just want to be like genuinely curious because we don't know all the things and because our experience is limited. And so we go into conversations, whether it's people who are in you know, our neighborhood, our workplace, our family, our friends, whoever else, when we have conversations about uh, politics or about policies with people, we do so assuming, I don't know all the things about all the things. And also, I don't know that person who I'm speaking to. I don't know all of their motives. I don't know all of their beliefs. I don't know exactly why they hold the positions they do. And so that leads me to say, like, I should just be genuinely curious. And I should just, like, ask questions of people. And being genuinely curious means we get really good at saying, here's what I see. Help me understand. Right? Where we just say, hey, you know, I, I, heard, I heard you say this about this, you know, particular politician, or I see you have this lawn sign in your yard, or I saw you post this thing, and like, can you like, can you help me understand your thought process? Like, I want to know, what is it that you see in this particular candidate that sets them apart from other people who are, you know, going for the same position? Like, help me understand, and just being genuinely curious and inquisitive. I want to know your thought process. We cultivate genuine curiosity by asking questions, by saying, tell me more, by saying, here's what I see, help me understand. And when we feel like we're at a place where we want to speak and we want to share our political uh, perspective or our convictions or our thoughts or our beliefs, what we do is we ask one more question, right? Because now there's a time to speak, right? To be clear about this. When we're in like just normal everyday conversation with friends or neighbors, people we have relationships with, like there's a natural give and take. Absolutely. We should not be afraid of like sharing our political convictions, but probably not as soon as we think we should. So instead of going in like guns ablazing and sharing all your thoughts and opinions, ask lots of questions. And when you feel like it's time for you to speak, ask more questions. And that's a way that we can practice Genuine curiosity. Now, there's lots of more ways we could express humility in the political realm, but I just want to offer these to you as just a starting place. Uh, You can uh, take this home and you can build upon this, but I think this is a good place for us to start. The reason we do all of this, the reason that we practice humility in these kinds of ways, is because we care about people. Humility creates lanes for conversation, right? I think we all know that when you come across someone who is intent only on sharing their own thoughts and their own opinions, there's no conversation to be had there. There's no like desire for you to like actually engage and give yourself to that person or that conversation. It's actually kind of repulsive and makes you want to like not share with that person and makes you want to like shut down. Humility creates lanes for conversation, and without lanes for conversation, how can we invite people into the life-giving way of Jesus? 
without lanes for conversation, how can we invite those who are already followers of Jesus into maybe a deeper or a more thoughtful or nuanced or maybe better way of engaging in the political sphere as an act of discipleship to Jesus? How can we do that if there are no lanes for conversation? Humility creates lanes for conversation. And the reason why we practice humility is because people matter. We care about people. We practice humility because it's the kind of people that Jesus wants us to be. It doesn't matter what the political landscape in our country looks like. Jesus calls us to be people of humility. It doesn't matter where the direction of, you know, politics in our country is headed or in the world is headed. Jesus calls us to be people of humility. Humility is not a tactic to get what we want. Humility is what God calls us to be all the time, no matter what. And so we embody humility. We practice humility because it's the kind of people Jesus wants us to be. And we practice humility because through humility, people get to see in us a glimpse of the gospel. People get to see in us a very flawed, to be clear, very small, but a very real picture of the good news about Jesus when they come in contact with us and we express and embody humility. We love people and seek their ultimate good and flourishing by humbling ourselves. And this is exactly what God has done for us in Jesus. This is the essence of the gospel. We humble ourselves for others because Jesus humbled himself for us. Humility is not a tactic for us to get what we want. Humility is something we do as a joyful response to what God has done for us in Jesus. Jesus humbled himself. Jesus took on human flesh. He accompanied us. He joined us in our humanity. And Jesus, when he was here, he experienced the worst that politics had to offer. Jesus found himself at odds with the Roman government. He found himself at odds with the leadership of the people of Israel. And those two groups banded together in order to have Jesus executed. Thank you. Jesus experienced the worst that politics had to offer. And he did so for us. And so what that means is that for us to be thoughtful people who engage politics well, our eyes have to be fixed on Jesus. And our embodiment of humility is a joyful response to what Jesus has already done for us. The way that we love others is because Jesus has poured out his love on us. So we humble ourselves for others because Jesus humbled himself for us. As we do each week, we get to come to the communion table and we get to remember and celebrate the humility that Jesus embodied and how it was for our good. And as we come forward and receive the broken body and shed blood of Jesus, that is the clearest expression and example of Jesus's humility and how he poured his life out for us. And that changes us. That transforms us. It makes us into a kind of people who joyfully want to respond to Jesus' humility by expressing humility of our own. And so we do that in our whole life, and especially in the realm of politics. As we come to the communion table this morning, I want to invite you, as we do each week, to take just a few moments of silence for confession and reflection. And then we will come together and celebrate Christ at the table.